We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Brendan Chilton, uh, who is a Labour Party councillor uh, in Ashford Borough uh, and is a councillor for Stanhope. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon. Thank you very much indeed for, for having me on. I'm very pleased to be on. And uh, despite the good weather, I've decided to come indoors <laughs> and uh, and record this rather than sit in the garden. <laughs> Well, uh, we're very grateful, and our, our listeners are very grateful as well. Um, the, the, the first question that I'd uh, like to ask is, um, of course, we've all uh, been enduring the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic, and the government are beginning to ease uh, the lockdown that we've all been enduring. So how do you think the government have handled the pandemic? What's your perspective for someone who works in local government in, in how the government have handled it? Well, I think, uh, first of all, uh, I don't like to be um, unduly critical. I think we have to acknowledge that this is obviously the first time in 100 years we've had a pandemic of this nature. And so really there's there's no textbook for this. Um, the government has been doing its level best um, to adapt as the situation has evolved. However, I think there have been really some, some fundamental flaws in in their approach and i think they're fairly obvious uh, to anyone first of all is in their communication and articulation of what they're trying to achieve in terms of public messaging has been all over the place uh, from from the very moment this became a thing uh, back in sort of january february when we heard there was this nasty virus out in china and it was moving this way we had the prime minister saying, oh, I, I was in hospital and shaking people's hands. And then we had, don't panic, it's all going to be OK. Then we had, oh, we got a lockdown. You know, the messaging was unclear. And of course, recent events with the prime minister's special advisor have only escalated uh, the confusion around what is uh, expected and required. Um, secondly, the, on the economy, the government is, of course, right to step in and support uh, the private sector when it becomes obvious that the private sector is unable to support itself. And certainly to mitigate the spread of the virus, it was necessary to temporarily uh, close down sectors of the economy to protect public health and public safety. But I don't think there is a clear plan to come out of it in terms of our economic recovery. Uh, we are seeing at the moment government bonds being sold uh, for less than their um, expected value. And so we are seeing an expectation there'll be quite a long recession that will evolve from this uh, pandemic. And if the government goes down the path which is expected, namely that of austerity, um, we are set for a decade of stagnation and uh, very low growth. And then thirdly and finally, I think in terms of our relations uh, with China, um, the government hasn't really articulated in any clear sense the future direction in those relationships, um, aside from the uncertainty and indeed curious figures that have come out of China in relation to the number of contagion and those who have died, uh, you know, there is that everyone says, oh, you can't trust anything that comes out of China. Well, attached to that, their brutality and crushing of democracy in Hong Kong, uh, as well as the internment of over a million Uyghur people in the Xi'an project uh, province, um, and their general uh, aggressive foreign policy science in Southeast Asia 
uh, our sort of uh, period of splendid Anglo-Sino relations, I think, has come to an end. And so on those three fronts, the communication with the people, the plan for the recovery, and also our international effort to find out what really went on, I don't think has been handled very well indeed at all. Um, now, you mentioned Dominic Cummings there at, at the beginning of your response. Do you think that he should have resigned or should have been sacked? I think um, it's when, when you have clearly um, gone against the rules uh, that you have played a part in setting, um, it is an expectation that, you know, an honourable thing to do would be to resign. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm great believer, uh, despite, you know, the sort of excitement and emotion that appears on social media, um, that innocent until proven guilty. Um, of course, this is not a criminal case, but it, it was stated uh, that he did, although make a minor breach of the rules, when people have been fined for sitting on park benches or people have been uh, issued fines for, you know, going out and exercising more than twice a day or for the various accounts we've seen on social media over the past few weeks and months. I think Mr Cummings should have resigned. Um, I know there are some people, and I'm a Brexiteer, there are some people on the Brexit wing who are saying, oh, there's a massive Remainer plot to get rid of Mr Cummings and then isolate the Prime Minister and, and stop Brexit. Well, I do think that's a little bit for the birds um, because you are seeing, actually, Brexiteers in the Conservative Party, such as Steve Baker and Peter Bone and others, uh, saying Mr Cummings should go. It's been notable that a number of cabinet ministers have not supported Mr Cummings. And given the Conservative Party's plummeting in the opinion polls, um, they've gone up a little bit in past recent days, but the trend is a downward trend. Uh, I would have thought that the Prime Minister would be wise at this stage to rid himself of his advisor. It doesn't look like that's going to happen. <laughs> Um, do you think that you mentioned uh, China in your first response? Do you think that Brexit provides an opportunity for Britain to move away from cooperation with China and move towards cooperating in terms of trade uh, with other countries? Well, uh, outside of the European Union, uh, subject to the transition period not being extended, and I think it's worthwhile just saying, although the government have made uh, very strong noises in the direction that it will not be extended. Uh, this is the same government which, at the beginning of this year, also said that in respect of the uh, leaving the European Union, and it was delayed a number of on a number of occasions. And indeed, several current members of the the, the cabinet, including the Prime Minister, did vote for Theresa May's awful deal at the last moment. And so as a Brexiteer, uh, given what we've seen over the past four years, I'm not certain there will be no extension. Uh, but in terms of our future trading relationships, um, the competencies on trade should return to, uh, to London and the government will have to develop its own independent trade policy. Now, I'm firmly of the view that we should not just extract ourselves from the European Union, remove our star from, from the flag and just become then a satellite of the United States or a satellite of China or any other uh, great trading bloc or power. Uh, we should have a truly independent trade policy that serves the United Kingdom. Um, everyone gets terribly excited about free trade deals. Free trade deals uh, are just really the icing on the cake. Trade is undertaken anyway between countries. If you can get a trade deal to reduce tariffs in certain areas, it's always helpful. Um, but they're not fundamental and essential to the economic uh, standing of any one nation. I think the UK does need to look further afield 
And because of our historic role as a, as a colonial power, we do have uh, long-standing relationships with many countries around the world. Um, those relationships are now uh, a more equal one and a more fair one uh, now that the colonial model has been done away with. And I think there are an assortment of countries, particularly in East and Southern Africa, in the Indian subcontinent, the Caribbean, and indeed the Kanzak countries that are crying out uh, for good trading relationships with the United Kingdom. And because of our historic uh, geopolitical spread, uh, having an influence in all corners of the world, I think we can play a crucial role as a soft power in balancing against the um, growing and in some ways aggressive uh, expansion of China, uh, particularly in Africa and in the Pacific countries and in uh, the Southern Asian sphere, uh, which I think will be particularly important because I think a lot of those countries, particularly around China, Vietnam, although the Vietnam is uh, not ever part of the British Commonwealth, uh, those Southeast Asian countries and Pacific Island countries do fear a growing China and a more dominant China. And if they can see an alliance of democracies and liberal democracies in particular, uh, standing shoulder to shoulder with them in solidarity, I think that could play a very key role in rebalancing the uh, global power shift that is currently happening uh, with a move to the east. And we have to ask ourselves really a long-term question. With uh, the West's stagnation and period of recession that we're inevitably going to go in, combined with a lack of investment, we're going to see, I think, China continue to grow in terms of its economic prowess. And do we really want to be in a position where essentially a communist dictatorship with huge fascist tendencies that has no respect for the rule of law, democracy and law and order, as we understand it, being the dominant economic power in the world, because this will have enormous consequences for world politics. And at this point, I think we need to, as a nation, and uh, with our alliance with the Commonwealth and with the United States, and indeed with our European partners, say, are we going to put up with this or are we going to seek some alterations? And I think we need to seek some alterations. Do you think that um, in terms of uh, combating uh, China and combating China economically, uh, that we should follow, uh, and this is something that um, Robert Reich advocated for, do you think we should follow a process of making um, items and products that are perhaps more robust and are more, more of a sort of like a, a, a quality uh, items rather than attempting to compete with China in terms of the quantity of items? Well, in, in terms of quantity, just because of our population, we will never be able to compete in that respect. Uh, and I think that, again, is fairly obvious. And in a few years' time, um, you know, we will see other great powers such as India, um, some Latin American countries, Nigeria and Southern Africa as well, just by sheer population and um, the, the cheap nature of production in those countries, um, they will be able to outproduce us in terms of quantity. But I think your point there is quite right in terms of quality. But in order to do that, we need to facilitate the appropriate economic conditions here at home in order to do that. Now, for example, at the moment, the pound is still, despite the uh, recent falls, is still relatively high, which does, of course, make manufacturing in this country more expensive. We have huge energy costs here in the UK comparable to other countries, which places additional strains on industry. And we don't invest anywhere near enough here. Uh, in light manufacturing and in productivity, in proven productivity, as compared to other countries. Uh, I think if you were to draw, obviously, it, it 
in some ways comparing apples with pears. But if you compare, for example, investment in China compared to investment in the UK, they outspend us in terms of investment in infrastructure, in light manufacturing and boosting productivity, something like 25 to 1. Now we need to level that up. And the way we do that is through a competitive exchange rate, which will enable us uh, to settle more easily on the markets. You also need to ensure you have a currency that you can um, fluctuate in order to boost your exports. And you need to have an appropriate investment strategy here at home. That does require uh, government and public spending. And I know the, the, the governments of both left and right will go, oh, let's give nurses more wages and that will boost the economy. And well, frankly, boosting wages doesn't always boost the economy. And um, we all agree that, you know, everyone in the public sector and the private sector would like to be and should be probably paid more. But higher salaries don't necessarily propagate growth. Um, it's the conditions on which uh, small and medium enterprises and manufacturing services can operate that will grow the economy. And, and coming back to Brexit, now that we are truly independent, um, no government of any colour can point over to Brussels and say, oh, it's their fault. Um, we have got to take responsibility for ourselves and pay our own way in the world. And at the moment, I don't think uh, the government, and I say as well to the Labour Party, um, we haven't come up with an alternative uh, economic and industrial policy or program or vision for the country. That said, I appreciate Sir Keir Starmer has only been leader of the Labour Party for about a month, and so you can't do everything in 30 days. But I do expect Labour to come forward with ideas on this and hopefully stimulate the debate about how we're going to do those things we've discussed uh, in the future. Do you think that um, part of the um, economic relationship between uh, Britain and China that has to change is ensuring that companies like, for example, uh, British Steel and recently we saw um, early last year uh, Ferrari over um, a Chinese uh, company Jenga uh, buying the British Steel uh, Scunthorpe uh, plant. Do you think that that is something that has to be tackled in ensuring that countries from, for example, China or uh, other nations are buying assets that could be used to help support British infrastructure? Well, for years in this country, uh, we have sold off our assets. Uh, it happened under the, really began happening under the Thatcher government, continued under Major, and indeed under the new Labour era, and very recently. And, and that's basically what we do. It's a, an, it's a cheap way, really, of, of bringing in revenues without actually doing the hard work of rebuilding a manufacturing sector. And uh, eventually we will run out of assets to sell and then we'll have to look at it then. But rather than get to that stage, wouldn't it not be better uh, to start altering the structure of our economy uh, to increase manufacturing now? Um, in particular, as I may say, the recent COVID-19 has demonstrated um, while we have been able in the uh, manufacturing services that we have had to quickly uh, transform their production from whatever it was they were making into PPE, for example, the very fact uh, that the British government uh, heading a country that's the fourth largest economy in the world was relying on school and sixth form design technology departments uh, to produce PPE for the public services really is quite shameful. But all credit to those who did produce it. But the fact that we had to rely on students in sixth forms to assist with the production of PPE uh, says something about the state of our manufacturing sector. Now, just coming to your point on the sale of assets, I think the government 
uh, again, of all colours, has been slightly restricted as to what it can determine is a strategic industry and the level of state activity that ought to exist to support that industry, partly because of state aid rules, uh, which have been as a result of our membership of the European Union. Um, now those uh, state aid rules are gone and are being restructured, I think the government will be in a much better position to determine how it wishes to operate in the future in relation to strategic industries. And I would suggest, certainly in light of uh, the virus, that the uh, pharmaceutical and manufacturing sectors would be at the top of that list. And in that sense, the government should really be in a position where it can say these are so strategic to the survival of the nation and indeed steel as well and other uh, energy sources too, that these are not for sale and these are not for uh, competitive uh, purchasing on the international markets. They are an essential service to the British economy and to the British people, and we will protect them and support them uh, to ensure that communities here at home uh, are able to survive and strengthen. Other countries do this. Um, there are many examples around the world. There are too many to go into in detail right now uh, where governments do play an active role in the support of particular industries and not least in China. <laughs> I mean, we've been quite critical of the interview we've been having of China uh, right now. But, uh, that, you know, I can't imagine it would be extremely easy for a British manufacturing firm to go in and take over factories in China. Uh, I think the Central Committee of the Communist Party wouldn't be too happy about that. Um, and while I'm not advocating communism here at home, I do think, uh, as we are now, you know, a nation standing alone in the international sphere, uh, amid great powers, trading blocks, etc., that we've got a duty to ourselves uh, to make sure that our country's economy is as secure as it can be. Are you worried at all about the potential impact of a no-deal Brexit, particularly given what has been happening recently with the uh, pandemic and the impact it has had on the economy? Well, I think uh, there are two key things uh, in, your, in your question there. The impact of coronavirus on the economy has undoubtedly uh, been absolutely disastrous. And uh, if you read most reports and forecasts, we're set to have uh, one of the deadliest recessions in 300 years. Um, but that's not just us, of course. The whole of Europe, the United States and the West generally are in the same position. Um, and so in that respect, um, regardless of whether we leave with or without a deal, it's going to be tough anyway. Um, I've always believed um, that leaving the European Union without a free trade deal would not be a disaster for the UK. While, of course, it's preferential to have one, um, it wouldn't be a disaster. Um, most tariffs on goods stand at around 2%. And if you take away our contribution to the EU and offset it against what those tariffs would be, we're pretty much in the same position as we are now. Um, I think the, the difficulty we're going to have, actually, in terms of a relationship with the EU is the extent to which uh, China's influence in Europe, in the EU, is growing. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative will see Chinese influence move enormously uh, into the European Union over the next five to ten years. And, of course, with the, we've seen uh, recent reports of, uh, in the papers over here of the European Union kowtowing to uh, Beijing uh, in terms of exposing the extent to which coronavirus uh, reached Europe uh, directly from China because of flights and trade, etc. And so there's that issue to contemplate as well. And I've always maintained, uh, since I've ever supported leaving the European Union, that a no-deal uh, situation is far better than a bad deal. And if the uh, Prime Minister's uh, political declaration is followed to the letter, 
uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol will essentially tie us to the European Union in terms of state aid, which has enormous ramifications for tax policy, for spending, for borrowing, for pay and all sorts of other issues concerning the fiscal uh, management of the state. And that, of course, will de facto make us a member of the EU. Taxation without representation, for want of a better phrase, um, will be subject to laws indirectly, but with no method of changing them. And so I do actually favour a clean break. And then once we're out of the EU, operating on WTO terms, which, as I say, uh, most tariff schedules have been reduced so dramatically in recent years as the movement of global capital and trade has increased that actually it would have a very minimal effect um, on the UK economy. And this was actually uh, discussed and uh, published in a paper I produced with Lord Lilly a few years ago uh, that explained in some detail, and I'll happily send you the link to this um, for you and perhaps your listeners to have a read, um, where it explains actually this will not be too bad for the United Kingdom. Um, you mentioned uh, Ireland there. Are you at all concerned about what may happen uh, to the border between um, uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, whether it's uh, no deal Brexit or if we do uh, leave with a deal? Are you worried at all about tensions at the border? I don't think so. I mean, obviously, there are always risks associated with these issues. But actually, I think uh, communities on both sides of the divide in the province of Northern Ireland are pretty committed to peace and to the Belfast Agreement. Um, we have to remember, of course, that free movement between uh, the Republic and the United Kingdom existed long before either the United Kingdom or the Republic of Ireland went into the European Economic Community. Um, Ireland's independence uh, from the United Kingdom, uh, although existing, existing in fact in some areas, did not exist in practice. Um, there, I believe it's in the 40, in the, in the, um, the Declaration of Independence from the Commonwealth, where we basically said Ireland is a separate country, but we're not going to treat them as a separate country. We'll still allow free movement because there were so many historic and family links between the two countries. It would have just made uh, such an arrangement almost impossible to manage. And so we've always had a sort of non-immigration policy with the Republic of Ireland. Um, and I see no reason why that wouldn't continue, given as well... Uh, that the UK is Ireland's biggest bilateral trading partner. I think it would be uh, disadvantageous to the Republic um, if difficulties were to emerge. And certainly both the British government and the government of the Republic and indeed the Northern Ireland Assembly and Executive have committed themselves to a continuous peaceful settlement in Ireland. I think, in fact, what the biggest risk is, is well, actually rather the biggest opportunity rather uh, for Northern Ireland is that because under the current agreement, they will have basically free access to the single market through the EU and also free access to the British market, you could find that Northern Ireland actually does extremely well uh, out of the settlement. While, of course, it does create a, uh, if you like, an invisible border down the Irish Sea, this is possibly uh, an economic boom time for the uh, province of Northern Ireland. Um, that said, if we do have to leave without a deal, and we end up with a system where um, the border in Northern Ireland uh, with the Republic does become more of a fact. Um, both the British government and the Irish government, the Commission and the Northern Ireland Assembly have said there will be no hard border on the island of Ireland. And I think we can take great confidence from that. And of course, with the 
increased uh, fluctuations of trade between the Northern Ireland uh, economy and the economy of the Republic. Um, I don't think the businesses in the in the province or the Republic would be in favour of a proper border with regulatory checks and tariffs and all the rest of it and inspections uh, being imposed. I think there'd be enormous lobbying effort on both sides and it wouldn't happen. Um, now, as we're recording this, uh, there have been a great deal of protests both in the United States and in the UK over the uh, homicide of George Floyd in Minneapolis in the United States. Do you think that the UK government's response to this has been appropriate? And do you think that things need to change in the United States? It's. I think there are two very complicated issues here. The first one dealing with the British response. Um, of course, it's absolutely right and proper that people in this country should have the right uh, to demonstrate and express solidarity with struggles the world over. I've attended many myself um, over the years. Um, however, in terms of the position of the British government making a statement on what is an internal matter in the United States, I think we would be moving down a very slippery slope uh, if every time something happened within a country that we didn't agree with, whether it was a one incident or a series of incidents, you then start to uh, really infringe on the sovereign integrity of another country. Now, we've just fought a referendum and four years of wrangling to stop other countries interfering with the internal affairs of our country. And so I don't necessarily think it's right for any British minister uh, to make a statement to the effect that the American government should change its policy. That is a matter for the American people or the American government. Uh, that said, the situation was appalling. I've seen the, the clip of the man when he was down and the policeman uh, had his, his, his knee upon his neck and he was saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And it does seem to me as so though the American law enforcement agencies do have uh, an extremely uh, tough job because they you know they did it's a vast country with complex issues and a huge population and so they do a difficult job under difficult circumstances that said uh for anyone to see the policeman committed murder homicide you absolutely use the correct term and i think he should face the full weight of the law in that country the united states does have a long-standing and you know deep-rooted uh, racist problem, uh, particularly in those southern states, and those are obvious historical um, reasons that we all know about. Uh, how the United States deals with this, I don't know. I certainly think the election of Barack Obama a few years ago was a change, uh, but certainly in recent years, um, it seems as though the polarization of uh, different societal norms and different communities in the United States has increased. Um, I never thought uh, in my lifetime I would see the re-emergence of the Ku Klux Klan, but they seem to be becoming more and more active in the United States, certainly online. Uh, the whole tone of American politics as well is extremely polarizing, and it, it's, there's a hateful tone in the language used by Republicans and Democrats, actually. Um, you know, you get the right wing calling the um, Democrats hard left and, you know, commies, and you get the hard left calling American right fascists and all the rest of it. It's sort of as though a student debating chamber has emerged as the national 
uh, place for debate and discussion. That's the sort of thing you get in university debating societies. Uh, you don't expect this in sensible politics. Now, I don't think we have that over here. Um, but certainly it's a concern, and I hope whatever justice systems operate in the states respectively are dealt with correctly. And I think America needs to continue to take a long, hard look at itself and decide if it is going to be the country that is the land of the free, home of the brave, the home of liberty and democracy, it needs to start acting like it. Because as we were discussing earlier, if an authoritarian regime such as China can present itself as the great economy of the world and at the same time provide strong law and order, which, to be fair to the Chinese, they do, my concern is that smaller countries that may be subject to influences from these greater powers could start turning from the West and turning to China for security and prosperity. So America needs to get its house in order quite quickly. Uh, but that said, I don't think it's the job of British ministers to be commenting on internal affairs in the United States. Um, I'd just like to move um, now uh, to uh, talking about Blue Labour, because I know you are a, a supporter of Blue Labour. And for those who uh, are not aware of it, we've discussed it on the podcast uh, before. Uh, what is Blue Labour? What are the uh, tenets of its ideology? Well, uh, the Labour Party is uh, extremely, this is an old cliche, but I'm going to use it anyway. The Labour Party is a broad church and um, it has historically had uh, two very distinct uh, strands within it, a very middle class liberal wing and a socially conservative, more working class wing. Um, I am I'm not, I don't hold any position in Blue Labour or, or indeed uh, speak on behalf of the organisation. I just subscribe to their newsletters and information. Um, I think there is a, a very strong moral and philosophical strand to Blue Labour. Namely, that the communities that the Labour Party was originally set up to represent were those blue-collar, working-class communities up and down the country. Now, some might say, oh, well, they, don't, they don't really exist anymore. Well, in terms of the jobs, no, because the great factories have gone, the mills have gone, but the culture is still there. Um, during recent general elections and indeed the referendum, I've, I've been all over the country uh, from, you know, Barnsley, all the way up to Newcastle, to Edinburgh, Glasgow, North Wales, the Southern Valleys and the Midlands. And despite the fact that those old working class jobs of mass production and factories have gone, the culture of those communities is strong as ever. And Blue Labour really, if anything, it, it is a cultural politics. It's saying that the Labour Party needs to use the language of those communities. It needs to look and sound like those communities. And that doesn't mean white builders in white vans. It means black people working on market stalls. It means Indians running, I'm just going to sound stereotypical, but corner shops and small businesses. It means white people running salons. It means white people running cafes. It means oriental people running takeaways. The language of working class jobs, the jobs that tend to be lower paid, hard physical work, you know, very labor intensive, and indeed people on middle and lower incomes, they don't espouse the language of international open borders, not because they're racist, but because they obviously can see that increased uh, supply uh, places more pressure on public services and housing and all the rest of it. They're not hostile to migration. They just want it to be managed. If you went to a dinner party in North London and said this, you'd be called a, a fascist. <laughs> There's nothing fascist about it. It's an economic model. And similarly, 
on identity. These communities that were cemented around, you know, the traditional industries that have now declined, although they have gone, they still have that strong sense of their local community, their sense of place, a sense of belonging. The idea uh, for some of these people that you can simply up sticks and move and work in Hong Kong for six months and then be sent on to San Francisco or down to Buenos Aires, it is a complete world away. Their reality and their community and their condition is striving from one week to the next on very limited incomes. It's striving from one week to next to get the next cleaning job or to get the next contract for cleaning, or rebuilding a garden or building a garden wall or working to try and get their first salon open. These basic ordinary things that ordinary people experience on a day-to-day basis. And when you try and say blue labor, people think, oh, it's a conservative, you know, plot to take over the Labour Party. No, it isn't. It's just simply going into an area, listening to people and hearing their concerns and their aspirations and ensuring that your party reflects them. Now, the ward I represent, for example, it is uh, very on all the uh, indexes of deprivation. It's one of the highest, not just in Kent, but in the country. You would find that odd because people assume Kent is this um, very wealthy, comfortable part of the country. It isn't. Uh, most of the uh, positions of employment in the ward I represent are builders, they're plumbers, they're cleaners, they're hairdressers, beauticians, drivers in public transport, porters in hospitals. On the whole, very low earning. They are for controlled borders. They are for strong defence. They're for, in some ways, iron fist law and order. But at the same time, they want to do well and earn money. They don't want to be told what to do by government on a day-to-day basis. But they love their NHS, they love their schools and they love their social care and don't anyone harm them. So it's a very peculiar combination of values. And it's very difficult for those people who've never had to strive and come up through those communities to understand. And I've I've sort of gone around this in a roundabout way. But Blue Labour is saying to the Labour Party, get back to your roots, believe in your country, believe in your community and you'll win. And I think had Labour adopted that approach in 2017 and in 2019, particularly in respect of Brexit, we would have done much better than we did. Do you think that, you've made a very emotive case for Blue Labour there, do you think that uh, Keir Starmer should adopt Blue Labour as as part of his his policy platform, or do you think that the way that uh, to win back the country is perhaps some uh, mesh of different ideologies? What do you think? It's, you, you wouldn't be able to win an election just on uh, ideas espoused by Blue Labour because every uh, successful party in history, whether they've been a Labour Party or a Conservative Party or indeed any other that has existed here or abroad, has won on a coalition. But I think it's understanding where the mass of that coalition comes from. And if you look at the electorate that Labour needs to win just to get a majority of one at the next general election. We need to gain around 100 seats. Now, that would be unprecedented. Um, But most of those seats which we lost in 2019 and in 2017, uh, although we did make gains in 2017, we did lose seats. And in in certain others, the Tories made, they didn't gain seats in 2017, but they made significant inroads. Those seats are the precise communities I've been talking to you about. Now, just the electoral arithmetic before us and the seats we need to win tell us that if we are to stand a chance of denting that Tory majority in Parliament in a significant way or getting to a majority, 
we need to alter the culture and philosophy of the Labour Party and orientate it more towards those communities than to perhaps the middle class communities of comfortable London seats. I think Sir Keir Starmer, I'll be honest with you, when we had the leadership election, uh, I didn't vote for Sir Keir Starmer and I didn't campaign for him. I supported Lisa Nandy because I felt her intellectual analysis of our defeat was far closer to mine. However, I have been exceptionally impressed with Keir Starmer's performance as leader of the Labour Party since he took over. And I think he does understand that he wants to uh, win the next election. That is obvious. Any leader of the Labour Party that praises our heroic troops and comments on VE Day in the Telegraph on VE Day is a man that wants to win. And that's encouraging. And I totally respect him for that. So I think he is moving in that direction. It's notable that he hasn't called yet for an extension to the transition period. It's very interesting that the Labour spokesperson on foreign affairs, Lisa Nandy, who was appointed by Sir Keir Starmer, has taken a very tough line on China in the House of Commons. And that sort of approach, I think, will go down well with those seats we need to win back because they're concerned about the defence and the security of the nation, as opposed to these globalist cosmopolitans that don't believe in the nation. Um, so I think the Labour Party is moving in that direction. Of course, we are only one month into, I think we're only one month into Sir Keir Starmer's leadership. And he's having to deal with the pandemic. He's got to rebuild the party and tread a very difficult line between doing, between being critical of the government and at the same time uh, supporting them where we can. So it is, it is very early to tell how the Labour Party will evolve, but the early signs are very encouraging. We're coming towards uh, the end of the podcast now. It's been great to speak to you, Brendan. I think it's been a, a, a fantastic discussion. And I'd have uh, one final question I'd like to ask. We've obviously been sc discussing the pandemic, and uh, part of that is we've all been spending a, a lot more time uh, indoors or uh, restrained in, in, in how much we can travel. So my question to you is uh, once, you know, the lockdown is, is fully lifted and we can go out as much as we want and do uh, more things that we haven't been able to do, what one thing are you looking forward to being able to do that you aren't able to do at the moment? Well, I have a, a lifetime battle with my weight. <laughs> Anybody knows me, that's the case. I've, I've always been a fatty. And I, every year I try and diet and lose weight and I have success and then put it back on. But this year I was really, really doing well. And I joined a brand new gym and uh, it had a fantastic weight section. I was doing cardio at one gym and weights at the other. And then as I was really getting into it, they brought lockdown in. <laughs> so um, I'm afraid my, my attempt at healthy living has really uh, struggled this year. Um, but so the first thing I'm really looking forward to actually is uh, getting back into a gym. That's on a sort of personal level. But the next thing is to be able to go and see my, my grandmother. She's been, um, we put her on lockdown uh, about a week and a half before the official lockdown began because we realised the severity of the situation. And it will be lovely to go and see her, have a cup of tea with her and have a chat. We obviously meet over Zoom, but it's not the same thing. Um, that would be very nice indeed. Oh, well, I think that those are two things that uh, a great deal of our listeners will also be uh, looking forward to, to doing as well. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Don't forget that you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean or YouTube. You can follow us at Debated Podcast on Twitter, like us, Debated Podcast on Facebook. And if you want to email us, 
either about appearing or making a comment or reaction to the episode you've heard or any other episodes, then email us thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.